I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. David Letterman and Netflix already have the show called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. But in the world of value investing, my next guest will never need an introduction. His name is Guy Spear. His book is the best-selling The Education of a Value Investor. And in my opinion, of the some 1,000 books or more that have been written on investing in the past 25 years, this is easily in the top five. My first impression with Guy as we started talking, it's like, Mark, dude, you can quit being nervous. Just relax. Guy's generous. He's smart. He's mindful. And he's thorough on any topic you throw him. This is CFO Bookshelf. My chat with Guy Spear is coming up next. I want to give a big shout out to Adam Mead for making this connection and interview possible. Adam has been on the show and he wrote a book called The Complete History of Berkshire Hathaway. And at the very top of the book, there's a blurb and it reads like this. The most comprehensive and detailed history of Berkshire Hathaway to date, a must read that belongs on the bookshelf of any serious investor. Who wrote that? Guy Spear. And I thought that was so cool was blown out of the water when I saw that because um, he asked me for a blurb and I was really happy to give the blurb. I mean, I had not read uh, the full uh, book and I'd I'd printed it out, which was, you know, when you print it out and, and somebody had hit it print on single-sided sheets. So those were like three feet worth of book sitting on my, next to my desk. And um, and of course, I was so happy to give a blurb. I mean, I thought he did a wonderful job. And what I do with when I give a blurb is I say, look, um, uh, here's my blurb. Now go and do better. When I read a nonfiction book, the first thing I do is I go to the back of the book to look for additional resources or other books to read. That's the first place I went to in your book. And I smiled as I saw a title that not many people mention this in the investment books category, investment biker by Jim Rogers. That is one of my, I love that book. You, you liked it, right? Of course I did. I mean, first of all, I, I'm, I used to be a motorcyclist. So, and I, and I, I just loved the idea of him traveling around. And I thought the insights that he'd given for the time were really, really valuable. And I had actually through, uh, my university alumni association had visited him in his home on the, he lived at the time on the Upper West Side. I don't know if he still does. He hosted a group of about 30 of us in his home. And I don't know how much influence that had had. And of course, I'd read uh, Alchemy of Finance by George Soros. I also got to meet George Soros once, actually. But um, part of what was going on there was that I had this friend, uh, William Green, who was helping me to he was kind of editing and rewriting a lot of what I had written to make it palatable and easier to read for the reader. And I had nothing to do but sit nervously while he edited my stuff. And so I worked on the bibliography. <laughs> so I had lots of time to work on the bibliography. You, you do not need to hear this from me. You've been interviewed hundreds of times, uh, TV, uh, video, podcasts, but I'm going to share one more accolade with you. Do I have your permission? <laughs> it's very kind of you. I'm, I'm, I'm less um, 
Uh, I'm less like Adam in this regard. I'm quite happy to hear the praise, so go ahead. (laughs) Well, again, the education of a value investor, I think this book is special. And to me, I see it as a hero's journey. Uh, you, you share your honesty. Uh, we get to see some flaws in Guy Spear. Uh, we get to see a couple of paths, one path he went down that maybe didn't turn out that well, D.H. Blair. But as I think about your book, Guy, I think of three words. I think of honesty. I think of humility. And I think of the humanities. Now, why do I say the humanities? Because you bring in the book the humanities to us through other books, through other learnings. So again, honesty, humility, and humanities. I'm not done yet, sir. If you've read the book, you need to listen to it. If you've listened to the book, you need to read it. It's one of those rare books where you should do both. And I'm still not done. If I could pick one investor, one investor, I don't know if you're a subscriber to Masterclass, you would be the guy who would do a Masterclass on investing. I just thought in your book, you knocked it out of the ballpark. So so that, what comes out in the book, what you need to, what the listener needs to know, and maybe anybody who's thinking of writing a book or a memoir, is that um, that did not come from a place of, quiet self-confidence it came from a place of utter terror so the (laughs) i mean not terror for my life but but yeah so so it's really important so you talk about so 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 we've got the hero's journey in the book of you know guy's path as an investor you know there's actually a word in german called bildungsroman which kind of like follows the story of somebody as they learn things through their life um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word for it in English. And so there's a hero's journey that unfolds through the book. But there's another hero's journey that unfolds through the writing of the book. So writing a book itself, I think perhaps in all circumstances, for people who write one, especially maybe your first book is a hero's journey. And um, every journey is different. And so what, what the listener needs to know is that I am, I've, I've, been I could tell you the story about how I ended up with a book contract, which itself was kind of interesting and serendipitous on some levels. And so I've got this book, and of course I got to say yes. I mean, my God, I'm getting the chance to write a book, and I'm being given money to do it, and it's a respectable publisher. And now you know time is going on, and I know what the expected delivery date for the manuscript is, and I'm scared out of my mind. I mean, what? Do I have to tell the reader that is new, authoritative, interesting, worthy of a book that is to be published? And and believe me, so, so in that sense, utter terror, because I know that, first of all, it's possible that at the end of the day, I deliver the manuscript and the publisher says, you know, actually, we, we don't want to publish this, but thank you so much. And I've seen that happen. So, you know, so a, a publisher will offer an opportunity to an author to write something, and then they look at it and they just say, I don't want to publish this, uh, because it's not, for one reason or another, and I could go into the details of how that happens, publishing is a very unusual business. But even if I knew that they were to publish it, this was may well have been the only book I published, and I wanted it to be something that I was proud of and something that would stand the test of time. And by that time, you know, Nassim Taleb has... Um, 
he's 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 written a bit and and I love this idea of the Lindy effect, you know. So the real test is how many years is your book going to still be around or remain in print, you know? It's very unlikely that any book that I write, including this one, will ever out outlive the Bible, for example, but it would be nice if it looked live 50 years, 100 years, you know, I mean, every now and then people do pick up Karl Marx's Capital, for example. But so many books don't get republished. So it's in a sense of utter terror that I ask myself the question, what on earth can I write about under the title of, I knew what the title would be, that would, it would be worthwhile for the reader. And, and I got, you know, the basic insight that I need to rip open my soul and and bear it to the reader that would be the most useful thing that I can do my point to you is you know always afterwards it looks like it was effortless or it looks like he just did it because he could do it and in the arena you know it is you are you know sweating bullets I guess the expression is it's never easy it's almost it's never fun it's an an enormous battle that is going on. And um, so, you know, I write the chapter on D.H. Blair. Now, for me, that is a huge step of self-revelation that, you know, I, I have a number of, I know a number of people who'd gone through D.H. Blair who prefer, you know, left it off their resume and preferred to kind of, you know, you know, sort of like cover their tracks, so to speak. And I'd written this chapter and I realized the moment I know where I was when I knew that this would be a chapter in my book, because there's another option is just to write it and then to just leave it quietly on the side and not go there. And, and the point for me was to know that if I, if I publish this chapter, I need to take the risk that, um, uh, I, I may never receive any more investment money again from anybody else because they'll ask the question that I ask in the book, which is either you knew what was going on, in which case you were also a crook or intending to be a crook, or you were just, just too stupid to know what was going on. Neither of them is any good. And, uh, and so I was willing to take that risk because there's somebody that I've been listening a lot to recently, Jordan Peterson, who has this wonderful line, uh, if you want to have an adventure, tell the truth. And somewhere inside me, I was ready to do that. But just that you know, it doesn't that that your very kind words of praise, which actually I would argue I, I'm grateful for, because I feel like they were deserved because they came. You know, when you're in a place of utter terror, you may be doing some good work. You may not be, but you might be. And it, it you know. I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not by a lot. You know, I'm I'm kind of an, a late bird these days. I go to sleep late, wake up late. Uh, I was up at five thirty a.m. every morning because it was the only time when I could face up to the terror of the enormity of the task that I had in front of me. <laughs> we'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I have a lot of highlights in this book, but probably one of my favorite quotes, 
and I'm sure you've heard comments like this, like, why did he pick that one? Or why did she think that one was so good? But here's a quote, guy, if you don't break out on your own now, you'd be completely nuts. Your father, your father said that to you. And that, that was poignant. Uh, it may have been a challenge at the time, but that sentence moved me as I was reading it. Was that a pivotal point when he said that, or maybe did the pivot point, the inflection point for you to do something differently occur before he said I that I mean, to you? I had, I had the one point at which I was doing, had done something different was that I went to work for D.H. Blair and I, I kind of turned away the all the standard and well-trodden path of investment banking jobs at the sort of big name bulge bracket investment banking firms. And <clears throat> I was aware that there was this, in retrospect, it's not a large family business, but it did provide me with downside protection, if you like. So I had taken that step on my own, but I, I you know, Mark, my my orientation is more professorial than entrepreneurial. So I stand in awe of people like Monish Pabrai because he um, he's a real entrepreneur, whereas I think that in a different version of my life, I might have ended up as a professor at university. And at the time that I was, that my father said that to me, I would have been going and trying to find my way back into one of those bulge bracket investment banks. And I think eventually one would have taken me but so I think that for him to say, if you don't do it, well, it's it's more than, and if I just look at the quote, you, it's not just that. So what he said to me is, if you don't break out on your own, you'd be completely nuts. But the, the underlying message was, you know, on some level, guy, I won't respect you, or you maybe won't respect yourself. I don't know what it was like for you. So when I came to the point when I was ready to ask my wife to marry me, um, in a certain way, I knew that if I didn't do it, a part of me would die. That, that was a hill I had to conquer. I'd conquered many other hills, but the hill of marriage was one that I still had to conquer. I knew there was no better place to commit fully. I knew that I wasn't going to meet a better person than my wife. Maybe I'd meet a different person, but I had to fully commit. In a certain way, my father was saying, you know, I, you, you have to fully commit to this idea now. If you don't, there's some part of me that won't respect you, but maybe there was some part of Guy Spear that wouldn't respect himself. How many people have you met, Mark, who look back into their 20s and 30s and realize they should have taken more risk then, but are too scared to take the risk now, you know? And by the way, I, wa I want to provide some context to that quote. We're talking as though we know this book like the back of your our hands. And, and this is after you left D.H. Blair. And, uh, and you may, it's like, am I going to manage money or am I not? And, uh, and that's when he said, you need to do this. And I think he saw your father saw something in you that guy, you can do this. <laughs> You're going to be very, very good at it. Yeah. So just to, to add to the context and thank you for reminding me that the listener doesn't necessarily know this. So I have been, I've graduated from business school. I've been 18 months at DH Blair. I finally figured out that I should have left on my day one, but I've left on month 18, which is not the very worst I could have done. I could have been there for longer. And uh, now I'm trying to get a job. And then from there, you know, I'm applying to these investment banks and other places and people looking at me leery eyed, you know, 18 months before I had this pristine resume, Oxford, Harvard, Oxford undergraduate, Harvard business school, postgraduate MBA. And uh, and then I go to D.H. Blair and they say, either this guy's a crook 
He knew what was going on at D.H. Blair, and he chose to work there in spite of that. Or he was just too stupid to figure it out. Now, just for the reader's benefit, and maybe there's some millennials in the audience, we didn't have the benefit of you know, Googling somebody or, you know, we, what I had to do was go to the Harvard Business School library and look up in the microfiche New York Times stories. But the fact of the matter is in the microfiche, there were New York Times stories that showed that D.H. Blair had bad practices. And within a few hours of me leaving, the brokerage firm was shut down for violating all sorts of National Association of Securities Dealers laws. So at that point, eventually I would have gotten a job uh, but it would have been hard and uh, I was kind of like uh, damaged goods. Or uh, And that, that's the point at which my father says, if you don't try to do this now, you may never do it. And, and yeah, he certainly gave me the push. And I have to say, he was my first investor and is still, uh, you know, probably my largest investor. And, you know, if you read the reviews, there's some people who react very badly to that. If you read the reviews on Amazon, if you look for the one-star reviews, so he says, oh, yeah, so a guy gets a million dollars from his father, and now he's writing a book about success. And, of course, that pained me. And I wrote back to him, you know, I, I, they say don't respond to the reviews. I said, look, dude, I am open and honest about the help that I got along the way. That's the point. I'm telling you about it. How many other books that you read, and they got help along the way, but they're not telling you about it. But he didn't respond to me. <laughs> so, uh, Speaking of Warren Buffett, that's been about, what was it, eight, nine years ago you had that lunch with him? I think a decade now. 2009, decade. I think. 2008. I, 2008. I, I think you just gave me the answer, but I was going to ask you, what is it that you remember the most looking back about 10 years ago, what what sticks with you? I'll give you another answer, Mark, which will go to, to where, so, so for the listener, we had a little bit of a pre-conversation. It was the realization that my IQ is not 160 and that Warren Buffett's IQ possibly is more than 160. It, it was kind of a hard, I mean, there are many things that came out of it, but it's kind of hard to, to you know, because it's just like you want to dream, you want to believe, you know, and I just think, well, maybe I'll come out of, you know, I feel like I have a good sense of somebody's, uh, if I'm in the bull cup park for them with, um, with intelligence, and I thought, well, maybe I'll come out of it feeling, and I did not feel that way. Who knows, maybe if I met him today, it would be different. But that was one of the big takeaways. Certainly, though, another huge takeaway was, and, and Mark, I, that was one microcosm of Warren doing it. So at some point, you know, he actually said, well, you guys have put up a lot of money for this lunch. I'm going to make sure that you get your money's worth. Can you imagine, here's the richest guy on the planet who saved an afternoon for you uh, just because you're donating some money to some damn charity that his wife supports, supported. And he's saying, looking at me, a guy, you know, there's, there's 70, at the time, it's like $75 billion of net worth sitting across the table from us. And he leans forward and he says, I'm going to make sure that you get your money's worth. And it's like, you, you feel like you want to jump out of your seat. It's like, did he just say that to me? <laughs> it's like, holy moly, did he just say that to me? So um, that idea, and just to give you another example of that, and, um, you know, he's like, at the end of the lunch, he says, I've got to take care of the waiters. So believe me, all of this you know, in Alice Schroeder's book, this idea of him being a penny pincher, you know, I didn't see any of that. I saw him give what appeared to me to be several hundred dollars to each one of the waiters. 
You know, again, so it wasn't just that he was trying to make sure that we came away for more than we bargained with. He was making sure that everybody in the room came away with more than they bargained with. And, you know, and, and here's the thing, you know, if, if Warren Buffett's doing it, if one of the richest or the richest guy on the planet is doing it, and he's like way older than me and, and doesn't owe me a damn thing, you know, how much more should we do that? And I think that, you know, if I, so for example, after my book, I work really hard at pretty much answering every single letter that comes to me. So I, tr I, I want to walk the talk. But it's also it comes out in, you know, hey, Mark wants to interview me. Let's let's spend the time with him. Make it feel generous. Make it feel happy. Make it feel celebratory. I got that from Warren Buffett, you know? Hey, the the part in the book, the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So here's the funny thing. Well, it's not funny, but maybe it may sound funny when I say this. But here I'd already it read the book once, a couple of years ago, three years ago. I'm going through that section again where you're managing, I mean, your, your, your fund has grown and it's 08, 09. My blood pressure was going up as I was going through that section again. That was well written. That I don't know if Michael Lewis could have written that section better. Again, it goes back to your, your writing with honesty and sincerity. But the question I have is not about 08, 09, did that time period prepare you for what happened last year during COVID? Or did you just think last year was no big deal? <laughs> yeah. As a value well, investor. Given what I lived through, you damn well hope that it had prepared me. Uh, but just to, so, so there's so much to unpack there that I think you'll enjoy having unpacked. So um, first of all, that chapter is one in which William Green perhaps helped me the most. Uh, and, I, you know, before I go there, I should just tell you, I had an, uh, an early collaborator with the on the book. Her name's Jessa Gamble. She's a science writer. And the book would not have gotten to the stage that it had gotten to without her. So I was getting up at 5.30 a.m. in the morning. She's staying with us in Zurich. And she's coming to the office and basically holding my hand as I just like, you know, I, I vomit on the page every now and then and in utter terror try to figure out what I'm going to write about. But then later, in I've almost handed the manuscript in, and now it, William, who's a, who's who's, I think there's a handful of people who can edit writing as well as William Green can. He's so we get to that chapter, and and he he tells me, he tells me you've totally flubbed this. It's like that's what it, that's 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 not what it was like. I called you during this period. This is what you said to me, and so there was. So while the book is extraordinarily honest, in that chapter, if William had not gotten to it, I had failed. It failed. Yeah, mm. I was not living up to the person I intended to be for the reader because I just couldn't handle it. It was too close. It was 2014. It was like too recent history. I don't know what. And and William took me through. He said, "No, this is what you're going to write." And he kind of and and he and I'm like sort of cringing. I know where I, I was sitting like 20 meters away from here and I, and I'm cringing. So, so what, what is my point to you? My point to you is that, you know, people think that writing is an easy activity, you know, all good writing, my experience is written in blood, so to speak. You know, they say writing is easy. You just, you just open a vein and let it bleed onto the page, you know? 
So um, just don't think that that honesty came easy. And that was an extremely difficult period for me. I remember yelling at my father over over the fact that he'd bought Lehman Brothers bonds. And so... Um, you were very... Uh, the emotions showed in that part of the book. <laughs> well, actually, what I tell you, Mark, is that what I've learned about, you know, if there's any good writing in me, the way to access the good writing is to access the things that I feel passionate about and of where the emotion rises in me. And so if, if you know, you know, the, the Hamilton musical, there's some, some great words where he says he is something and he can, he, he took out a pen and he connected it to his brain. Well, if you can take the pen and connect it to the powerful emotions that you feel and kind of try and connect those emotions to words on the page, there's a vibrancy and there's an aliveness to those words. So, uh, so it's raw because I, I had found a way by that point in the book and with William's help to connect those words to the emotions that I was feeling. And and that is, in a certain sense, the most valuable to the reader. It's like, okay, fine, that schmuck, that schmuck felt the same way that I think I felt, so it's all okay. Uh, so if we fast forward to the um, uh, COVID crisis, basically uh, sort of March of last year, um, I, you know what? What you should read, and and I will certainly provide it to you, is my annual letter to investors. Because I think that what that period did prepare me for was the emotional roller coaster, and what to do about the emotional roller coaster, and how to handle myself. Um, you know, I wasn't about to engage in any dumb trades, uh, but I think that I, on a personal level. I took the crisis and look, our portfolio was down about 50% at one point. So I took all of that, uh, you know, I took all of that a lot better for myself. I, but, but that's not to say that I was kind of happy as a clam. I wasn't. And I had enormous amounts of regrets over not carrying enough cash. And I had some investments, an investment in a, in a shopping mall company that was totally decimated and, um, so so that it kind of did prepare me for. But, you know, I was, and I write in my letter, I was, I didn't predict the crisis. I wasn't in the right companies. You know, all, all of this, sort of like, I, I continually mispredicted the crisis. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I kind of like wrote with that level of honesty to my investors this year and told them, you know, just a couple of things as to where I think maybe their money is safe with me but did not present myself as an omniscient God who kind of had understood where it was all going to go from there. So emotionally, I was a little prepared. And I'll just take you back to something that I'd asked Warren Buffett in an unrelated field, but I think the answer is the same way as I, you know, I asked him, is it, is it hard to do the right thing when the rest of the world is telling you to do the wrong thing? Does it become any easier? I asked him. And he kind of like, he turned his head a little, he said, you know, he said, Riley, a little, you know, it's like not a lot, but a little. So I think the same way, I think that living through 2008 gave, made it a little easier, but not a lot easier, you know. And I think that Mark, uh, you know, Charlie Munger said it so well, this ain't supposed to be easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, and it's not easy. So you know, if you don't like the if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen type of deal. And 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 my point to the listener is, 
if you're not suffering, then you're probably not doing something right. Yes, you're supposed to suffer, you know, and, and that's something that I kind of don't buy from. Well, actually, I look, uh, um, you buy something, you've got to assume that now God's watching you, it'll go down by 50%. You know, don't, don't tell me that's not painful. Of course, it's painful. You know, it's going to happen, but it's still painful. You know, it's like I, I just watched, I saw photographs of my children getting vaccinated today. They got their second Pfizer jab today in New York City. You go in, you know, you know it's going to be fine, but you still don't like getting the jab. You know, you don't, well, you don't want a damn needle put inside you, even if it's tiny, even the person's so good at doing all that jazz. So, uh, so the, the long answer or the short answer to my very long or summary of my very long answer is it got, I was a little prepared, a little prepared psychologically. But here's what I was not prepared for, Mark, is I really did believe, I really did believe after 2008, I said, I've lived through the big one. It's going to be plain sailing from here. And, you know, the kind of the big reveal of 2020 was, no, you haven't lived through the big one and there may be more big ones to come. So just, you know, assume the big one's just around the corner at any moment. This is a perfect segue for my next question. Most of the investment books I read, I don't think I've ever come up with this concept. It's temperament versus IQ. Uh, even in Don to Investor, love that book. I don't think he gets into that, that area. I just finished reading uh, for the second time, Roger Lowenstein's book on, on Buffett. A great, great read. You almost have to read between the lines to get in the head of, of, of Warren Buffett. But again, temperament, versus IQ. What's what was the big aha or why is it a critical concept when it comes to value investing? Well, let's just uh, so so I'll give you uh three personalities that I I know relatively well. Uh I'll start with Monish and then I'll continue Monish Pabrai, who's this Indian investor and the author of The Dando Investor, and is covered in William Green's book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. And then I'll move on to Warren Buffett, as I know him, which is not the very best, but I've read all the books and I met him a few times. And then I'll continue to myself. And just to talk about temperament before we get into IQ. So um when we when we so so let me tell you a little bit more about Monish's temperament. So the, the Monish's temperament was honed in a furnace, a very special furnace. So the furnace was one in which he tells, he said this publicly, he cannot remember how many times his father went bankrupt. He cannot remember how many times. He has this famous phrase, you know, he, he would imagine himself a rope to pull himself out of the hole that he was in. You know, and and so, but what Monish also uh, has said is that through all of that time, the basic sense of confidence that his parents had that they would be able to feed their families, even when they didn't know where the food was coming from the next day, there was a sense of optimism they would find it. So that is a crucible of experience that Monish had in the very early years of his life, like the first decade, I believe, or longer perhaps, that has deeply, deeply influenced Monish thinking today and his attitude towards risk. Uh, Monish is 
I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but if, if, if all he has is a little bit of food, a shawarma a day, and he can play a bridge game, He's a happy as a clam. In fact, might be even happier. Monish and I were on a trip in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem, and there are these, uh, you know, there are these tight alleyways in the in the bazaar or the marketplace, and you have these kind of like cavernous small caves where different merchants. And Monish was imagining that I was a merchant in one of the caves. Well, merchant that we're running our funds out of one of these little holes, and I'm, you know, in one of those caves, and he's like 500 meters down the road, and like kind of we we meet to eat shawarma. I mean, in that kind of environment, he'd be as happy. He'd just be ecstatic. So he's really not fearful of, you know, we know from behavioral finance that, you know, the 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 the, the pleasure we get from a gain is far outweighed by the pain we feel at a loss, which is asymmetric and is not rational. Well, Monish doesn't have that. He's not fearful of the downside in the way that, for example, I'm fearful of the the downside. So there's one temperament there. If you take uh, Warren Buffett's temperament, so Monish has extremely high EQ and has an extremely high awareness of what people are thinking or doing. I to the best of my knowledge, not knowing Warren as well as I know Monish or myself, uh, I think that Warren has less of that. Still extraordinarily smart, but but not quite the same level of empathy to what people are feeling. It's just uh, Warren is, in that regard, perhaps, I mean, some people would call it Asperger-ish, maybe more of an engineering type. And um, so the temperament is slightly different. I think that in Warren's case, he just... He hasn't been through that crucible. He's been through a different crucible that I don't fully understand. But he also doesn't feel the fear of loss the way normal humans do. Uh, But it's a different way to the way... There's a certain way in which I think... Well, certainly Monish feels very alive in moments when the markets are going haywire. I think perhaps even more alive because it takes him back to some very special moments in childhood where he felt the tension of potentially going bankrupt, not knowing where food was coming from, but still feeling a lot of um, uh, confidence and calm in the situation. So Monish goes to a very special place when the markets go haywire. Maybe Warren does as well. It's not clear to me. And then you have Guy Spear who has the temperament. You know, I, I, I fall into all the behavioral traps that everybody has. I don't have any special wiring in that regard. And, um, and the good news—the good news for the rest of us—and I really do place myself very squarely in the temperament of the average human, unlike uh, Monish and Warren—is that I think that provided you find the right ways to shape your behavior and your environment, and the two analogies I've used in the past are drunks in bars, and the other analogy is bowling with the with the curtains up. You know, you want to find ways to shape your environment to get the right investment decisions going. You can do fine. When you come to intelligence, uh, you know, I'll take all of the extra IQ points that Warren has and all of the extra IQ points that Monish has. And, and thank you very much. I'll take them because of Warren, Warren at least has said he doesn't need them. Well, that's fine, Warren. I'll trade them to you and I'll probably pay a pretty penny for them as well. Um, I think that he's right because I know so many smart people, people who have perhaps, you know, a higher IQ than mine is perhaps a similar IQ to Warren's or Monish's uh, who have, um, you know, screwed up royally. And 
uh, you know, I, one of them is a well-known case of long-term capital management that you just stop and you think. And, you, and here's the point to the listener is when you're in that situation where somebody's making you feel stupid and they're not even aware that they're making you feel stupid, but, you know, it's like, well, I'll get, I'll, in all seriousness, I'm afraid of saying this word because I don't know where it'll go and I don't know, but, but in front of a lot of the crypto stuff, I feel stupid. I, you know, have I read some white papers? Have I listened to a bunch of podcasts? Do I think I understand the basics of cryptography and of cryptocurrencies? Yes. Uh, do I, you know, I've gone further. I've done some seminars. I feel I understand what SushiSwap is doing. I understand what, um, you know, earning a return for liquidity providing is. But I still feel kind of stupid when I'm when I'm kind of like I, I have not played and don't intend to play in that arena. Those people, we, we see so many who end up going belly up. And, you know, even though they weren't aware of it and they weren't doing it deliberately, in some way, collectively, they're making the rest of us feel very stupid. I think that's kind of a feeling to be aware of and say, well, if I'm being made to feel stupid, there's probably some game going on that I don't understand that it's just as well. I stay with my feeling of being stupid rather than trying to join the crowd. In that regard, and forgive me, because I'm sort of like following on, I saw... An amazing photograph today. Don't ask me why it came up. It's a bunch of Nazi officers saluting with the Nazi salute, Adolf Hitler. And there's one, one guy in this photograph that refuses to give the salute. You know, that guy. So that's some, I mean, maybe he was just asleep or maybe he was just angry or maybe he'd just been beaten up his wife or something. But the man's not giving a salute and there's about 300 of them in this photograph and one man's not giving the salute. That is temperament. That is clearly temperament. And uh, look, at the end of the day, Mark, um, we can't change our IQ. So take that as a given, you know, but there's a lot that we can do with our behavior and our temperament. So we might as well go with that. If I were a betting man, I would presuppose that people who meet you for the first time or have heard of you, the question may come up, can I make a living at being a full-time investor? Now, I have an opinion. My opinion is, yeah, if you have a lot of capital or if you have some other people's capital, I would love to hear your answer. Some young person, maybe in their young early 20s, mid-20s, maybe they've hit 30, can just an individual make a living just being a full-time investor? So, uh, you know, I, I think that the answer is it <laughs> It depends. <laughs> yeah, which I was expecting yeah, that answer. Which reminds me of another question somebody asked, which is kind of like, so how are you doing? And the answer comes, compared to what? You know, <laughs> And there's the famous Tony Robbins uh, element of his seminar where he says, you know, the guy who gets up every day and he says, every day that I get up and I'm above ground is a good day, you know. So I think it depends very much. I mean, I'm amazed. I, You know, I've seen stories, not recently, but I'm sure it'll come up where somebody shuts down a half a billion dollar fund because they just can't make it work on half a billion dollars. I promise you, it happens. And so you think, wow, what, you know, and in their world, they needed, you know, high-end offices in New York City. They needed five analysts. They needed all sorts of infrastructure. And if they weren't able to do it that way, they couldn't run a business. And so um, for that person, 
you know, any amount of money is probably not enough. Hey, and for, for Mr. Huang, the guy from um, Archigos, you know, he could handle 10 billion. <laughs> but then, you know, I'll, there's, there's, I have a group of people that I meet with on a monthly basis who are all, so, so at some period about three or four years ago, I got about eight mentorship requests at the same time it felt to me within a period of two or three months. People who basically wanted to speak to me and say, well, I want to figure out how you're doing it. Would you really be willing to spend some time on the phone with me? And what I did was I put them all together on one call and we meet once a month. And we're all equals on the call. So right now I still have the largest fund of all of us, but we share, we don't share investment ideas. We share challenges in running the business. And there's one guy who, when he, when he started coming on the call, he was, he had about $3 million in assets and now I believe he's at $15 million in assets. And he once showed me uh, how he runs his finances. And you see the most extraordinarily frugal guy on the freaking planet. And it helps that his his wife and the mother of his children also works. And that as the fund has grown, she gratefully can work less. But so it really depends. And, and, and it's I would just say that it's been a tough... It's been a tough road for him that I think will will lead to ultimately to extraordinary success. And so I think that if I were in the shoes of somebody who's that age, what I'd look to do is to 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 try and develop a advisory or fund management business while still having options of how to generate alternate income until I can fully lift off, so to speak, because. The worst thing is to be desperate. And so you need to be able to show your prospects that you're not desperate and you've got all the time in the world. Because if you just stay in the game for long enough, then you, eventually the snowball should develop. Any moment in time, I feel like nothing's happening. you know. And it's kind of super frustrating. It's like watching the grass grow. But so in those moments, we first of all, we need two things. We need to be able to sustain ourselves in those moments and in a certain way be confident that if nothing ever happens from there, we can sustain ourselves forever. So you need that bread and butter, whatever it is. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that you feel like nothing's happening, but you have to keep doing those things that you know if you do them for long enough, then eventually good stuff will happen. It was about 20 years ago when I would drive home, I'd turn on the radio and there'd be this loud, squeaky voice. And he had a such a part of his radio show called The Lightning Round. And we're talking about James Kramer. Uh, number one, inner versus outer scorecard. Inner, of course, but it's hard and remains hard. And it gets easier, but just a little bit. I love the answer. By the way, a tip of the cap to Warren Buffett. But again, this is in the book. And I love that part. I wish we could have spent more time, but love the answer. I'm I'm anxious to see if you're going to smile. Of course, you already are, but the posse. Mastermind group. So we all need our mastermind groups. If you don't have one, build one. And uh, keep shaping it. Keep learning how to have the best possible mastermind group. That The posse was my earliest and first mastermind group. Uh, pulled together by Whitney Tilson, who's remained a wonderful friend and great mountain climber. Always find your mastermind group and read Napoleon Hill, who's the guy who coined that phrase. 
The next one is, and I hope I don't get you upset by bringing up these two words. I just happened to read Scott Farron's book uh, this spring, but going short, going short. You know how you is uh, there be dragons here, <laughs> prepare to meet dragons. You know, or or the other thing is, what is it, Melvin Capital? What else does one need to say? Uh, and 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 you know, I brought up uh, Whitney Tilson. I think that I was. Whitney Tilson has a very, very good book out, out called The Art of Playing Defense, uh, you know, how not to screw up, basically. And um, so Whitney Tilson was extremely successful at shorting lung, lumber liquidators and was very public about that short and extremely unsuccessful in shorting Tesla. And the amount of money that people that I know have lost shorting Tesla, for example, is just, so there be dragons here, tread at your own risk. And no, let me give you a different answer, Mark. This is, so please go ahead and short, <laughs> short away and leave the rest of the field to us. So in a certain way, what's the benefit of all this special speculative excess? People got to move, put their money somewhere. So, you know, blast away and, you know, except it's not very nice because eventually they, many of those people will lose the money. So it's not actually a generous thought that I've given. But Next item on the lightning round, greed and envy. Greed is just stupid. Envy is auspicious. Those are the short answers. But both any emotion that we have is something that we need to listen to emotions or calls call to action so don't sweep it under the rug don't put it under the bed listen to it the best uh sort of insight there's a poem by rumi called the guest wonderful poem i wrote about it in my most recent email newsletter or uh somebody who is the subject of a podcast episode on my podcast interviewed by a friend georgina godwin um, treat the emotions as like, you know, passengers in your car. Strap them into your car, into the into the passenger seat of the car, not into the front seat, certainly not into the driver's seat, and take them on the ride with you. That doesn't mean they're welcome. That doesn't mean that they're not going to yell and scream, but, but listen to them and, you know, see if you can pacify them. So greed. So, so Mark, for me, trying to be the richest man on the planet is a bit like, you know, the man who goes and stores oxygen tanks around his house. And he says, well, you know, we breathe oxygen, so I've got enough oxygen to last me many lifetimes. And the answer is, but you've only got one lifetime, so why are you storing the oxygen? It's like, oh, well, this is great. Look how much oxygen I've got. I'm so cool. I've got something. Yeah, but you're never going to use it. So what's the point? And, um, and it seems to me that somebody who's feeling greedy is really kind of lost in some kind of disconnect between what you need to live and 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 what makes you happy and and you're kind of like still driven by the desire to acquire what you need but it's gone in the wrong direction it's gone way beyond um there is no point it's a bit like you know that famous japanese soldier so famous i don't remember his name the the japanese soldier on the island of okinawa who 20 or 30 years after World War II is still ready to fight the Americans. You're like, dude, that battle's over. You know, don't, don't you realize? And so somebody who's gone far beyond what they need for day-to-day -day living and is still on the acquisition of wealth, you know, the, you got to have to have their head examined. I mean, what is going on there? 
so so greed really you need to look at the motivations and try and realign i think that the way Warren, so so Warren Buffett, it truly makes him happy to do what he does. And I think that once you've met your basic needs and your Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to start looking at making the world beautiful. And the good news is that you make the world beautiful in your own image in the way that you want to make it beautiful. But if you're not making the world beautiful, and for Warren, making the world beautiful is to build Berkshire Hathaway into the Museum of American Business. He loves the company. He loves the example that it shows us to the world, and the money is irrelevant to him. So irrelevant that one of the things I said to him, and I'm so pleased because I got it right, I said, you know, Warren, the company's never going to pay a dividend, least of all to you. You take a, a salary of $100,000, which is um, uh, nominal, and you, you, the, the most you're going to do with the shares is give them away. So actually, you and I are the same because you're never going to make, you're never going to benefit, you're never going to sell the shares to your own benefit. And he said, that's absolutely right. So that's where you want to get to. Moving on to envy. Envy, envy is so auspicious, Mark. Envy is something that I think that uh, actually in the in the short essay that I wrote, I think that you know I go, I'm so bold as to say I think Charlie and um, Warren get it wrong because what they say is they say uh, uh, you know the the, the the hilarious thing about envy is that of all the all, of all the seven deadly sins it's not even fun at least the other seven deadly sins are fun but envy just kind of like riles you up inside but and and envy does do that but it doesn't it misses the potential of envy and the potential of envy is to is, is it's, it, it contains within it the clues that will guide us to what we ought to be doing. And so look at, so it, like so many things. So if you get, anybody can get angry, and I'm quoting somebody, I don't remember who, but it's a, it's a famous quote, so somebody can look it up. But it's not about getting angry. It's getting angry with the right person in the right way at the right time. That's hard. Anybody can get angry. But so that idea of, what are you going to do with that envy? Why? Where is it coming from? Who's making you envious? What it is about their life that's making you envious? And most of the time, perhaps all of the time, the envy is directly connected to something in us that we have not achieved, we're not given our full effort on, we've not tried. You know, you imagine me, and I don't take the opportunity that my father gives me, and then 10 years later, I'm envious of some guy who started a fund. You know, that is so now rather than just sweep the envy under the rug and say, well, that's one of the seven deadly sins that doesn't even isn't even fun. So I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist. No, take it out, strap it in the car with you, let it drive around with you. Where is the envy coming from? What can I do about it now? Deadly serious question and difficult question. I'm not saying it's not, you know, envy comes up because we missed opportunities because we did not do our best because life was unfair and cruel to us. And so the envy forces us to face up to those realities and, you know, to stand up and be adults in the situation, but to make some tough choices. And if we get to the right decisions and we live them out, the envy will disappear, is what I believe. So if, if I'm envious of, to take a trite example, I'm envious of XYZ, Hillary Tenzing, Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing for climbing Everest. And now I'm on my climb to Mount Everest, or maybe it's K2 or some other climb, unclimbed mountain. 
I'm no longer feeling envy because I'm the man in the frickin' arena. So, you know, the envy has been dealt with. And so figuring out what steps do I need to take, it's a very powerful signal that our the wisest part of ourselves is giving us to say, there are steps you need to take that you haven't taken. But in our modern world, with our reptilian wiring, those messages get scrambled. And so we need to unscramble those messages to find their true meaning and you know, some people write in a diary, some people go talk a therapist, some people have a good friend, but one way or another, you know, use that emotion, that use emo- that emotion has incredible potential in it. It's auspicious if you use it in the right way. If you use it in the wrong way, you'll just become spiteful and you'll become angry and unhappy and, you know, a mean son of a bitch. But if you use it in the right way, your life will grow. Last one. Guy you know, when I last brain. had perhaps cocaine, cocaine brain. brain is when I was short one of those companies. I mean, what that does to your mind when you're short something is just insane. So for the for the listener's knowledge, uh, so Atul Gavande, who wrote the Checklist Manifesto, calls me up to talk about checklists. And I, <laughs> I'm so nervous to talk to this celebrated writer for The New Yorker and, and and when it first came out, I'm kind of like, my God, did I actually say that? And um, so my experience of trying that, uh, as a friend of mine described it, delightful drug once, is that the, one of the best days I had in my life, I remember being with a good childhood friend of mine, we were 18 years old, and we're skiing, we've hiked to the top of a mountain, we're skiing through waist high powder, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and it is amazing. And so I I had my try of this substance, and it took me straight to the same feeling right away. And uh, there are elements of investing that do that for certain people. And I think that when you short something and it goes down as a result of the words that you've said, uh, it's kind of like it's a rush. It's a rush of power that is um, very dangerous. Cocaine brain, my two-word answer, is very dangerous. Best an- antidote anything around mindfulness. Forget about all the guided meditation garbage. You know, just just silence. Silence for as long as you can. Is it one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and a bell at the beginning and a bell at the end. But mindfulness meditation can also be taking your dog for a walk, going for a swim, going for a long bike ride, a run, all of those things. That and a good night's sleep, which will take you away from cocaine brain. Cocaine brain is very dangerous, very, very dangerous. It's good to recognize people are on cocaine brain. So, you know, the forms of addiction and sort of uh, the uh, feedback loop of a dopamine hit are, you know, have never been more prevalent in our lives. And in a certain way, it's just, I mean, we're getting into a whole topic here that I know that we all have strong opinions on. Um, it's, a, it's a great shame that the devices that are so inc- extraordinarily useful to us in so many ways and that we can't live without are also deliverers of these serial dopamine hits that addict us to all sorts of things which we don't understand uh, the impact on our brains. And that is another, you know, very dangerous, be careful. So, you know, it's a very... We all work with our phones. We all work with computers. I do my best not to take the phone into the bedroom. And then I got an iPad. I thought, well, iPad, I'll take, you know, I, I, I am working on not bringing the iPad into the bedroom. 
So the only thing I will allow myself is a Kindle. Kindle is okay. But um, yeah, cocaine brain, very dangerous. Many different forms of it. Guy Spear, this has been a breath of fresh air. You are one of those people I would enjoy hanging out with over lunch, dinner, a ball game, just to talk more about investing, books, anything, everything. Well done. And again, love the book, Guy. The education. When, when you get asked great value investor. that gives me the opportunity to think about things I haven't thought about. And you've given me plenty to think about. And so I really, really appreciate that. And um it's kind of like reassuring for me to know that it's not the same subject matter and over and over again. It's fun to discover that there's new things to talk about. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Guy, I know you're listening to this episode. So for a little fun, I dare listeners to find Guy either on Twitter or LinkedIn and ask him, what did you think of the first 200 pages of David Copperfield? And Guy, I just know you're laughing out loud right now. And speaking of David Copperfield, I will be releasing a second episode with Guy. The title will be A Virtual Lunch with Guy Spear. And if you've read The Education of a Value Investor, you'll know exactly where that name came from. And back to the David Copperfield comment, Guy's response, he had two comments that we captured about books in general. Great answer on books, reading in general. Guy's book, it's a five-star book. You've heard the title many times, The Education of a Value Investor. More importantly, Guy is a five-star person, giving, uh, thoughtful, and leaves plenty on the table for others. I'm Mark Gandy. Keep learning, keep growing. This is CFO Bookshelf. (music) 